Well, good morning. Uh, good to see you all uh, here. And how many of you noticed that fall has begun? It was remarkably colder uh, this morning on our way in, uh, and I am uh, I'm excited uh, about that. Well, if you have your Bibles, please open with me to John chapter one. That's where we will continue our study this morning. And some of you may have heard that in recent weeks there was a Supreme Court justice uh, who who was being nominated and who had uh, come before the Senate Judiciary Committee. And over the course of his uh, nomination and questioning, there were some accusations of sexual misconduct uh, that came about uh, that were... I guess, uh, alleged to have taken place when he was a teenager. And, and during the course of the investigation, he was, you know, brought before the Senate Judiciary Committee and both Judge Kavanaugh and his accuser, uh, were questioned. Uh, and they had to give testimony. Uh, and there were other witnesses who were brought in, uh, to answer questions regarding, uh, what had taken, taken place, uh, so many years ago. And it, it's amazing of how important the testimony of a witness is, right? Uh, because oftentimes a serious decision, a decision that is so important, hinges upon the testimony of an individual or of individuals. And as we've, we've studied these first five verses in the Gospel of John, and the Apostle has made some really big claims about who Jesus is. We, we saw in verses 1 through 5 that, that what John has in essence said is that Jesus is God and yet distinct from God. That Jesus was with God in the beginning, that he is the creator, that he is the source of light and he is the source of life, that he is the one who is able to overcome the powers of darkness. Those are big claims. And John the Apostle understands that. And if we're to believe these claims that he is making about who Christ is, he better back up those claims. Remember that the purpose of this entire gospel, the reason that he wrote all of these chapters, is to get us to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing we might have eternal life in him. But that's a big claim. That's going to take some convincing. And in a courtroom, if you're going to convince somebody, what do you need? You need witnesses. You need evidence. You need testimony. And what what John the Apostle is going to begin to do as we unfold this gospel is he's going to begin to present to us a whole lot of evidence. He's going to bring forth testimony. He's going to bring forth witnesses that will prove his point. Because this claim that Jesus is God is a lot more significant, as significant as what was being accused of uh, regarding Judge Kavanaugh. That was, that was significant, but this is of far greater significance because this has implications for our eternity. This has implications for how we live our life because, again, if Jesus is God, if he's our creator, if he's our only hope for salvation and reconciliation with the holy God that we have rebelled against, then we need to understand if we should believe in him. If these are the claims that are being made, they better be substantiated. If we are, if we are to look to Jesus as our creator and savior, as our Lord and as the one who is worthy of our worship and our allegiance, 
God isn't asking us to believe blindly. The Apostle John is not asking us to believe blindly. That's why the the gospel doesn't stop after five verses. right? He doesn't just say, hey, Jesus, the word was God in the beginning, and you need to believe that. End of gospel. He doesn't do that. And what we're going to see is that over the course of these 21 chapters, John is going to prove that Jesus is God, and he's going to bring out seven different types of witnesses to prove his point. He's going to point to first John the Baptist, who we're going to look at today, as the first witness to say, hey, Jesus is who I have said he is, that Jesus is the Son of God, the creator of all things. The first witness to that is going to be John the Baptist. We're also going to see that the Old Testament scriptures, John chapter 5, bear witness to who Jesus is. Jesus, in a debate with the Pharisees, is going to say, hey, Moses wrote about me. The scriptures bear testimony to who I am and what I would do. That's witness number two. Witness number three is the miraculous works of Jesus. Jesus says, you should believe in who I am because of what I'm doing. Because I'm feeding 5,000 people virtually out of nothing. Because I'm healing the blind and the lame. Because I'm raising the dead. These are the arguments that he is going to to put forth that his miraculous works bear testimony that he is God. Further, Jesus' own personal testimony. John chapter 8 says, My testimony is that I am the Son of God, and you need to believe it. Then we also see the testimony of God the Father, the testimony of God the Holy Spirit. We have the, the Trinity, the three members of the Trinity, all testifying that Jesus is God. And then we have... The seventh type of witness that we see in John's gospel is normal everyday people. The man who was born blind and now is suddenly able to see. He testifies that, that Jesus is the Messiah. He says, how, how, how can he do the things that he's doing with, and not be who he says he is? We see also Lazarus, the Samaritan woman, the, and the multitude who, who saw Lazarus raised from the dead. All of them are going to testify that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. And this morning, as we're introduced to the first of these witnesses, John the Baptist, in verses 6 through 8, John chapter 1, we're going to see the importance of this particular witness. Why is he appearing in the prologue? Remember, John, John's gospel begins, verses 1 to 18 in chapter 1 are the, are the beginning. They're the, the foyer. They're the, the entryway that we're going to walk into and see all of the other themes in this gospel. And so why does he introduce John the Baptist as the, the, the first witness? Well, and what we're going to see in verses 6 through 13, we're only going to look at 6 through 8 today, but let's look just briefly at this larger section of 6 through 13 in John chapter 1. We're going to see the response of the world to the Word. When the Word comes into the world... John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. When that happened, how did the world respond? And we're going to see in verses 6 through 13, as we're going to read them right now, that the word was announced by John the Baptist, that he was rejected by his people, and then he was received by some. Read along with me. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. 
He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And as we're going to look today at at this faithful Christian witness, this faithful messenger in John the Baptist, now it is... On, on one layer, it's important for us just to know who John the Baptist is and the role that he plays in redemption. It's important for us to, to know and understand that, but in our, our Bible study 101 class that we've been having in the equipping hour, we, we say every, every passage of the Bible has uh, a what, a why, and a so what. And you might be asking, we come to these three verses about John the Baptist, this man who lived 2,000 years ago, who's going to enter into the gospel and leave very shortly after. Uh, he doesn't come into the picture beyond John 3. Why do we need to know this? And why do we need to know this right here and right now? Why does this matter for us? What's the so what? Well, what we see in John the Baptist is the example of a faithful messenger. We're going to see he was somebody who was sent by God, commissioned by God to go and be a witness. And that's great for John the Baptist. But where does that overlap with us? So we have to understand that our calling as Christians, we are all called to be witnesses. We are all called to be ambassadors. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore, speaking of all Christians, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And I love that passage, and this passage is why we are Ambassador Bible Fellowship, because how should we view ourselves as ambassadors? We we represent a king who's not here, and we need to represent him well, and we need to carry forth the message to others that he is the light. Additionally, in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, verses that you might be familiar with, known as the Great Commission, Jesus commissions all of his disciples He says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we may be learning about John the Baptist, but we're also learning about what does it look like to be a faithful messenger, a faithful proclaimer of who Jesus is. So in that sense, this is a very applicable text to us. We see an example of faithfulness that we are to follow after. Was John the Baptist perfect? No. But he's set as an example for us to follow of what a faithful messenger looks like. And as we read about John the Baptist in these three verses and learn about his faithful testimony regarding the person and work of Jesus, we're going to see also who we are, what we are to do, and why we are to do it. Because that's exactly what we're going to see of John the Baptist. Who he was, what he came to do, and why he came to do it. We will look at the identity, the function, and the purpose of a faithful witness that we see in John and is now applicable to us that we might strive after his example. Let's begin to to look at this, the identity of of, of a faithful witness. And that identity, how we are to view ourselves and how John viewed himself, was that he was a messenger from God. And this is seen in verse 6 and then at the beginning of verse 8. 
Verse 6 says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. A little background on John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a is considered an Old Testament or an Old Covenant prophet because he was the, the final prophet who was prophesied. He was going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. See, in the Old Testament, in passages such as Isaiah 40 and Malachi chapter 3 and Malachi 4, which we'll, we'll read in a second, it was prophesied that prior to the Messiah... Prior to the ultimate prophet, there was going to be another prophet who would come and he would be the one to identify who the Messiah was going to be. He was going to be a pointer. Say, hey, look, here he is. And that is the person of John the Baptist. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, predict the coming of this forerunner. And it says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord Make straight in the desert in a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And the idea there is before a king would come and travel to a city, there would be a forerunner to that king who would come and say, Hey, get ready, because the king's coming. And we need to make the, the ways smooth. Don't make him go through all of these hills and curves. And uh, those are dangerous for robbers and other things. Let's make the paths straight and level so the king can come in easily into the city. And that is exactly what the forerunner was to do with the Messiah. Further, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, speaking of John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before me. Malachi 4 verses 5 and 6 say, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And John's function was to come and he proclaimed a baptism of repentance. He came and spoke to Israel and said, Hey, you need to turn from your ways, repent and be baptized. Now, in in this day and time, baptism was something that Gentiles did to enter into Judaism. If if a Gentile wanted to become a Jew, he had to turn away from his former life and be baptized. And now John the Baptist is coming to Jews and telling them what you got to you got to change what you're doing. You need to be baptized and enter into a new way of living in preparation for the coming Messiah. Turn with me over to to Mark chapter one. Mark begins his gospel by looking at John the Baptist. And he begins his, his account of Jesus' ministry when Jesus is baptized by John. Read along with me. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet. And he quotes the passage we just read. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. 
And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. That was, that was the role and the function of John the Baptist. That is what he was sent to do. And as we jump back over to John chapter 1, as we look at verse 6, we are introduced to John the Baptist. That was the, the, the background. Now we see John the Baptist for the first time in this gospel. And there's an immediately a distinction made between the word and John. We see in verse 6, there came a man. This isn't the word, this is, this is a human. Separate, also that little word, we've talked about it before. The idea, the difference of a verb of being, of hey, he was, and the idea of coming into existence. Uh, and the ESV translates it the same way uh, in verse 6, but the NASB, I kind of prefer their translation. They say, there came a man sent from God whose name was John, where the ESV just says there was a man. But there's a distinction there. John the Apostle is making a distinction between the Word who always existed and John who came into existence to testify about the Word. And the idea that there came a man sent from God, the idea of having been sent, and it's a, it's a special word, it's the idea of being commissioned, the idea of dispatching someone for the achievement of some objective, commissioning someone with authority as an envoy, and the verb tense provides a, a greater emphasis that it, this was a permanent position. This was a permanent commission that John the Baptist received to point to Jesus. It wasn't temporary. It had permanent implications. And John was to be the prophet to point to and identify the Messiah for Israel. And he was commissioned in the same way that other Old Testament prophets were, similar to Moses or Isaiah. And so John the Apostle says, hey, there was this man who was sent from God. His name was John. And then jump down to the beginning of verse 8. So John the Apostle identifies who John the Baptist is, and then he identifies who he's not. So he is a man sent from God, but he was not the light. John makes that distinction. Then that he, it's, it's emphasis of, hey, this one, this guy, this person is not the light. And again, we have to ask, why would he, why does he need to make that clarification? Why, why does he need to say clearly and distinctly that John the Baptist is not the light that should be followed and that should be, uh, worshiped and viewed in that capacity? Well, it was necessary because there were for a time, some who believed in John the Baptist but didn't believe in Jesus. There were some who followed John as the Messiah but didn't hadn't made that transition into knowing who Jesus was. We see this uh, in Luke chapter 3, verse 15. It says, Now while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. John comes and is doing all of these amazing things, baptizing. He looks like a prophet, dressed like a prophet, has the diet of a prophet, locusts and wild honey. 
He's doing all of these things. And some people are beginning to wonder, hey, is this the one that we've been waiting for? Later on in the book of Acts, speaking of a man named Apollos, Acts 18.25, says he had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, but he knew only the baptism of John. Apollos was one, hey, he knew something about Jesus, but he was most familiar just with Jesus being baptized by John. That, that was a limited understanding that Apollos had. Uh, and then Aquila and Priscilla came along and shepherded him and helped him to grow in his understanding. Then Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 5. It says, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, and there he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. See, John makes this distinction because he knew there were some who followed John the Baptist, but they didn't know Christ. And so John the Apostle was trying to say, hey, don't follow John the Baptist. You need to know about Jesus. He's the one that you need to trust in, absolutely. And John the Apostle understood this because he was one of the first disciples of John the Baptist. He was one later on that we're going to look at later on in John chapter 1. And so he understood that, hey, I was following John the Baptist, but then I made that switch. As John the Baptist pointed to Jesus, John the Apostle said, oh, this is who I I will believe in and begin to follow. And John the Apostle makes this distinction because he's discouraging us from viewing John the Baptist as the one that we need to be like, as the one that we need to follow, as the one who will shed light upon our lives. And this is important. We need to know who not to follow just as much as we need to know who to follow. Amen? And, and let's think about this for a little bit. A little bit of a, an example here. So in the concept of, of secular psychology and counseling, when you go to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist to help get uh, get help uh, concerning life's problems, there there's seven major schools of psychology uh, in in the psychological field, with many, many other subdivisions, and you could, if you divided them all up, there would be hundreds of different views concerning how to help people. And each of those psychologists, if you were to go visit one, they would counsel you based upon what they have been taught and according to their school and their training. And in the course of that time with that psychologist, they would be giving you counsel, And they would begin to attempt to direct your thinking in the same way that they have been taught to think. Uh, And as they, as they do this, uh, they're gonna say, hey, you, the, your, your cure, you will be made well by beginning to think like who? Like them. And so, in essence, in their model of, of counseling, you will begin to be like them. But what's wrong with that? Where does that go awry? Because they're they're still a fallen, sinful individual, right? And, and and to a certain degree, John the Apostle is making that same point. Don't follow John the Baptist because he's just a man. 
and the person you follow after you're going to eventually become like. Uh, and within secular counseling theories, the counselor themselves, they're trying to get you to think like them and then you will eventually become like them and they set themselves up as the, the example. But what does scripture say that we are to do? Who are we supposed to follow? Christ. Later on in the, in the Corinthian church, Paul rebukes the church because they say, hey, I'm, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul. Uh, they're following all of these, these teachers and these, these individuals, these men. But Paul says, no, you need to follow Christ. Don't begin to split up into factions and, and know and understand that who you follow, you will eventually become like. And that is very, very significant. Who are we holding up as the person that we need to follow. And John the Apostle is saying, we need to follow Christ. John the Baptist is not the light. Jesus is the light. And in biblical counseling, and pastoral counseling, I'm not pointing anybody to me. Who should I point them to? To Jesus. I'm not saying, I'm not saying be like me. To a certain degree, I'm saying, follow me as I follow Christ. But we pursue God, we pursue Christ because he is the only one who is perfect. He is the one that we need to be like. And that's always a temptation that we face. We like to be the light. We like to be those who help other people. And that's a good thing, that's a good desire. But we need to understand, just like John the Baptist wasn't the light, we are not the light. We are not the light that people need to see. We need to point them to Jesus. If we are messengers from God, we are not God. <laughs> we are not the model and the template to follow. Uh, a pastor once had a had a visitor come up to him and jokingly comment, so, so you're the guy with all the answers, right? And the pastor responded, no, I'm the guy who points to that guy. Uh, and that's how we all as Christians need to see and understand ourselves. We don't have all of the answers. We know where the answers are to be found in God's word, and we know who is able to heal, who is able to bring hope and comfort and encouragement, and all we can do is point others to him. We can't be the template. We can't be the light to others. John wasn't the light. And if John the Baptist wasn't the light that we're supposed to follow, none of us are that light that others need to follow. We need to point people to Christ and view ourselves not as the light, but as messengers from God. Uh, in in recent uh, months, just in my own reading, we, we read through First uh, Corinthians, and, and one of my KFCAs was uh, to to read and memorize First Corinthians four verses one and two. Uh, just a passage speaking of, hey, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of God's mystery. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So if we have been entrusted as messengers, we don't get to change the message. We don't get to decide when to hold back the message or when to, to bring it forth. We, we carry the message to others, and the message is not us. It is Jesus. And we must understand our identity, that we have been commissioned, and we must be faithful to that commission. We aren't the light, but we've been sent to carry it forward. And just that John, as John was commissioned by God, we've seen the task to which we are also called as ambassadors for Christ. But then, what does it look like to be a witness? What do we do? That's the next thing we'll look at. The function of a faithful witness. To testify about the light. And we see this in the first part of verse 7 and the last part of verse 8. 
says that he came as a witness to bear witness about the light. And at the end of verse 8, that same idea is repeated. John was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And we see this, this concept repeated. See, within, within these two verses, what word appears three times? Witness. Yeah. Uh, This is a recurring theme. This word witness is going to be used 33 times in John's gospel. As I said, John's going to inundate us with evidence of who Jesus is. He's going to inundate us with testimony concerning why we should believe that Jesus is the Son of God. John was commissioned to be an official witness, someone who would bear testimony about the light. And to be a witness, to bear testimony, it's the idea of confirming or attesting to something that we have personal knowledge of. Usually what we we say somebody was an eyewitness, that means they were they were there. They know what happened. We are called to be witnesses, to provide information about a person or an event concerning which we have knowledge. And the the Greek word for witness is where we get our English word martyr. Have you hear that? But usually when we hear martyr, what do we think of? Somebody who's died. Somebody who has been killed because of what they have been a witness to. And we are all called to be martyrs. We are all called to be witnesses about who Jesus is and what he has done. And, and the fact that this is repeated again three times in two verses shows emphasis. But let's also zoom out. John is making these claims. And John, coming from a Jewish background, to make a claim that would be accepted by other Jews, what did you have to provide? If you're going to make an accusation against somebody, what did you need? You need the testimony of two or three witnesses. And again, this is the biggest claim that John could ever make. He's charging Jesus with being God. That's what he's saying. You need to believe and trust in him. But he's going to need to bring forth witnesses. He's going to need to bring forth evidence. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. But again, how many witnesses, how many types of witnesses did I say John presents in this gospel? Seven different types. Not just occasions of testimony, but just different types of witnesses. John more than doubles the, the necessary requirement in order to prove his point. And what we see here in this verse is the ministry of John the Baptist at a glance. Of what he came to do is to bear testimony, to be a witness, to point others to Christ. And again, if we... If we are to be witnesses also, if we, if we are going to be ambassadors, what do we have to do? What do witnesses have to do when they get up to the witness stand? they got to speak. They, they have to use words. They have to, to bear testimony. They have to speak about what they know, who they know, what they have seen. And we understand that. If we're going to follow Jesus, we have to be willing to speak about him. And that's not always fun, right? We don't always look forward to that. But listen listen to these words in Mark chapter 8. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself 
and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it man, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. To a certain extent, you can think of gospel opportunities, opportunities to share the gospel with others. It's almost a a two-edged sword. So every time we act as a witness for Christ, telling others who he is, what he's done, and what he is capable of doing in their lives, there's the possibility, an exciting possibility, that what might that person do? They might believe in Christ. They might respond and rejoice and praise the Lord. But what else might happen? That person might scoff at you, ridicule you, attack you, bring about greater consequences, upon you. And if we're brutally honest at these two possibilities, we're, they're exhilarating and it's paralyzing. Right? We're like, I want to be a witness for Christ, but I'm also afraid to step out and do what the Lord's calling me to do. Sometimes I'm afraid to be a witness. And, and we all face that temptation. Pastors, elders, everybody faces this temptation to to be silent when we should speak. To be a mute when we should be a witness. But we are called to bear testimony of Jesus. But in those circumstances that when we are faithful, is that the is that the unforgivable sin? Is that unpardonable? And we've anybody else been silent when they should have spoken? And how do we know that's not the unpardonable sin, that if you don't speak for Jesus at every single opportunity, you're you're going to hell? How do I know that's not the unpardonable sin? Well, just look at the apostles, all all 11 of them. What did they do when Jesus was arrested? I, I don't know him. No, I don't know that guy. And what we're going to see even later in John's gospel is Peter denied him three times in a single night. Even cursed, like, no, I do not know him. Don't even, don't even accuse me of that. And then later on, Peter is going to be restored by Christ and used by Christ greatly. See, being fearful in a moment doesn't mean that you're no longer of any use to the Lord. And not bearing witness every single time that we should doesn't mean that we've lost our salvation. That means we, yeah, we've lost some rewards and we need to grow in faithfulness. We need to grow in boldness. Do you know what was amazing in the early church? Guess what they prayed for? Boldness. And guess what they received? Boldness. And so when it comes to this, when it comes to, hey, we have been called to be witnesses, we need to pray for boldness. We need to pray for opportunities and then look for opportunities. And then also come to a realization. I was listening to a Christian radio program the other day, and this uh, Christian leader said, hey, we need to develop a theology of being fired. We need to, to develop a, a theology of what are my convictions about when to speak and what to speak about? And will I deny Christ when it's convenient? Will I, will I go the smooth route or will I speak truth if it's necessary? Pointing out unrighteousness, pointing people to Christ and to the gospel. 
And since we're speaking about John the Baptist, since we're speaking about what it looks like to be a faithful witness, John the Baptist was arrested by King Herod because he spoke against Herod, because he said, hey, you can't take your brother's wife. That's not right. You shouldn't do that. So Herod took him and locked him up, and then Herod's wife said, hey, I want him dead, and ultimately conspired and and had him killed. John the Baptist was beheaded for speaking the truth, for pointing to the gospel of repentance, the gospel of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist was beheaded for it. So he, he understood he had that theology of being fired, so to speak. He had a theology of, am I willing to lose my head for this? And we need to, to pray for boldness and, and to begin to develop that kind of an attitude. Am I willing to stand for Christ no matter the cost? Uh, am I willing to, to stand and pursue Jesus? Will I be ashamed of him? Will I f- speak faithfully of him? no matter what it may cost me. That is what we see, what we have to kind of come to grips with if we're going to follow in the footsteps of John the Baptist. Are we willing to stand for Christ? Are we willing to to tell others about Jesus? And there's many people who who are willing to tell others about Jesus, but sometimes we do it and we lose sight of our goal. Uh, and, and that brings us to our third point this morning. What, what should be the goal? If we're going to be witnesses, what type of witnesses do we want to be? What's the purpose? What's the goal of our testimony? And what we'll see lastly this morning is that the purpose of a faithful witness is to prompt belief in the light. Look at, nestled in the very middle of this little paragraph. Verse 7 says, He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that, so that, all might believe through him. What was the purpose of John coming and bearing testimony? To get others to believe in Jesus. That was his his goal. And that is exactly what he did. Just look over verses 35 and 36 in John chapter 1. The next day, again, John, speaking of John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. He says, hey, behold, look, look, there he is. He's the one that you need to follow. And then those two disciples, Andrew, the brother of Peter, and this John the Apostle, who's never named in this gospel, were those two disciples who began to follow Jesus because of the witness of John the Baptist. And ultimately, because of the nature of John the Baptist's ministry, because of when he ministered, because he was called to be the very first person to point Jesus out to others and say, hey, this is the Messiah. In essence, everybody else who has believed, the 12 apostles and all of those who have, by the ministry of the apostles and and the church beyond that, we've all believed through who? Because of John. That's why, that's why John the Apostle can say that all might believe through John the Baptist. It's because of John the Baptist saying, this is the Messiah. And bearing testimony to what took place when John the Baptist baptized Jesus. That's what this means and that's what this is pointing to. That all might believe in him. But the goal of John's witness, that others would come to faith, should be the goal of our witness. 
See, our goal is not to, not to call people names or pose questions that will stump other people. It's not to win Facebook arguments. Has anybody ever won a Facebook argument where somebody said, I am now convinced of your position and I agree with you wholeheartedly? Has anybody ever had that happen? Never, I've never even heard of that happening. Our, our goal is not to win arguments on social media, not to embarrass others. It's not to even to condemn others or to shame them. And what I mean by that, I'm not saying we don't point out sin. I'm not saying that we, we compromise that. We still speak truth. We still identify sin as sin. We don't change the gospel. We don't water down the truth. But if we understand that the goal of our testimony is to bring other people into relationship with Christ, that changes the way that we go about it. See, if my goal is to win an argument, what am I going to do? Whatever it takes, right? And I don't care what I say or how I conduct myself. But if my goal is to see this person to speak truth to them and, Lord willing, see them come to faith in Christ, then the way that I am a witness, the way that I bear testimony changes. If you turn over to to 2 Timothy chapter 2, this is a very important passage and something that we need to keep in mind when we're speaking, when we're typing on our cell phones, when we're getting ready to post something, when we're getting ready to to respond, look with me, Second Timothy chapter two. We can begin in verse twenty-two. As Paul's writing to Timothy, a, a man younger than him, a man he has discipled, and he says, "So flee youthful passions." And oftentimes, that's interpreted or or believed to be uh, sexual Im- temptation. Hey, flee those youthful passions, but what else are young men tempted to do? Get into Facebook arguments, right? We are, we are tempted to always be combative, to go toe-to-toe with anybody, to start arguments, to try and finish them. But Paul says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. So what is, what is it a servant of the Lord is supposed to do? Run to the quarrels or go into the middle of the fray? Throw that grenade into that conversation? No. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. That's an exact number. Everyone. Further, he must be able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. See, that's the mindset that we need to carry into any witnessing situation. Anytime we're going forth as a witness, anytime we're speaking of Christ, we do it with gentleness, with patience, being willing to endure evil, being willing to be attacked by others. Have them call us names, have them ridicule us. Whatever the cost may be, we're willing to patiently endure it. That is what we are called to do. And when we understand our goal, that changes how we carry out our ministry, how we carry out 
what we have been called to do. We have to understand the identity, the function, and the purpose of our Christian witness. We've been commissioned by God as messengers to carry forth a message of reconciliation. So you can't carry a message of reconciliation with hostility. It's counterproductive. This is what we are called to do. And furthermore, we must share this message. In the early 1500s, there were, there were two monks who were named Martin. The first was a man named Martin Basil. He was convinced of the truth of the gospel, but he hesitated to proclaim it. And so he wrote this confession on a piece of parchment. He says, O oh, most merciful Christ, I know that I am saved only by the merit of your blood. It says, Holy Jesus, I acknowledge your sufferings for me, and I love you, I love you. Martin Basil came to understand the gospel. And then what did he do with it? Well, he, he took a stone out of the wall in his chamber, and on that little piece of parchment, parchment that he had written that confession, he put the confession behind the stone and then put the stone back. And his confession of faith, his confession of, I love Jesus, I believe in him, he's my hope, he's my salvation, well, that was found a hundred years later. And no one knew that he had found Christ, that he had understood the gospel. Then there was another Martin, a man you might have heard of, Martin Luther, who also saw clearly from the scriptures the gospel, that we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. Not anything that we do, but simply looking to Jesus. I don't have to, to do that hamster wheel of works because I'll never get off that hamster wheel. I'll never be able to do enough good deeds to satisfy God. I can't have my, my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. It's impossible. I simply need to look to Christ. Martin Luther figured that out from the scriptures. He read the Bible and understood what it said. And then he told the world. He said, my Lord has confessed me before men. I will not shrink to confess him before kings. And the world was unchanged by Martin Basil, but it was dramatically changed by Martin Luther because he shared what he learned about Christ. And may we be faithful witnesses. A faithful witness doesn't take the message that he's been given and then put it behind a wall. We don't get to do that. That's not a faithful witness. Faithful witness goes and proclaims it. He's not ashamed of the one who bore our shame, who bore our guilt, and was crucified on the cross for us. So as we go forward this week, as we go and to act as witnesses of Christ, may we be faithful, just like John the Baptist, just like Martin Luther, and so many others throughout church history. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we come with humbled hearts, Lord, with a desire to to acknowledge and confess that we have been imperfect witnesses, that we have not always given testimony about who Jesus is, about how he has saved us, about how he has impacted our lives, 
And Lord, we would come and just ask for your forgiveness. And Lord, we would ask that you would change us. That you would transform us. That you would deepen us in our love and in our affection, our appreciation for all that Jesus has done on our behalf. And that out of love for him and what he has done, that we might go forward as witnesses, as messengers of the light. Not that we are the light. Lord, may we only point people to Christ, not to ourselves. And may we boldly proclaim, Lord, may you give us boldness to go this week, to speak the truth in love, being patient, being gracious, representing our Lord and Savior well, so that he might receive all the glory, honor, and praise, and that we might see others come to know him as we know him, Lord, as our Savior, as our God. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.